Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 22 through 33, and Romans 16, verses 1 through 16. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, <clears throat> that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my loved Impenitus, who has the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tremphena and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, 
and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, we are uh, here closing up, as I mentioned last week, uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We'll be in uh, this section, uh, 1522 through 1616, that's Romans 1522 through 1616 today. Uh, next week we'll uh, have uh, another part of 16 and then we'll be wrapping it up on, uh, on a Valentine's Day. It'll be an awesome time. Uh, I'm going to be upfront this morning about my aim for you in this passage, though. Um, I'm just going to be honest about where I hope that you'll land and where we, I hope we will land together as, as a church and as the church of God. Uh, I, I want you this morning, this is my aim, this is my goal, I want you this morning to be challenged. I want you to be challenged in your personal involvement and in the mission and the fellowship of Christ Church. I want you to be personally challenged and personally stretched this morning and to, to, to look at your personal involvement in, in God's mission and the fellowship of the saints at Doxa Church. I, I, I aim, this is my aim for you this morning from this passage. I want you to see the challenging and the beautiful picture of how Paul and the early Christians viewed the church and their involvement in the church. My, my goal and my aim for us this morning is that it should result in us viewing our, per, our, our personal view and our personal involvement of the local church differently, perhaps, than we do now. It should, hopefully, prayerfully, result in, in you, in us, rearranging our lives around the things that Paul and these early Christians that we see in this passage arrange their lives around. It should result, I pray, in, in us rearranging our lives, changing our lives to, to the same extent that not only Paul and the early Christians, but all the Christians who haven't been lured into slumber and apathy have changed and rearranged their life around the local church. Here, here's the picture that, that Paul is painting for us of the, of the church this morning. Uh, it, it's a phrase that's not going to mean anything much to you yet, possibly, but it's the phrase, uh, a missionary fellowship. In fact, if you have a piece of paper or a, a, a note app, you should pull that out and write that because it's an unusual phrase. It's not one that comes up often in conversations, right? The church, the local church is a missionary fellowship. Write that down, missionary fellowship, if you have something to, to, to jot that down on. Maybe you have a photographic memory and you can put it in your head right now, but it still wouldn't hurt to jot it down somewhere. Missionary fellowship. Now, again, that phrase may not mean much to you, but I hope as we move along, it'll, it'll mean a little bit more. In fact, if you have that piece of paper or that note, beside the... Uh, missionary fellowship or below that, write the local church, the local church, and then put an equal sign beside that. I don't have it on the, the screen beside me because I want you guys to think about this. Write down the local church equals missionary fellowship. That's what the local church is. The local church equals a missionary fellowship. And then if you have more space, put another equal sign and put deeply shared lives on a deeply shared mission. That's what a missionary fellowship is. So the local church is. A local church equals a missionary fellowship. That's what the local church, local church is. And that means a deeply shared, deeply shared lives on a deeply shared mission. What the local church is supposed to be. 
deeply shared lives on a deeply shared mission. In other words, we're on a mission together and we are deep fellowship as we are on this mission together. There's no question that COVID has changed the landscape of the church in America and actually in other countries as well. Uh, We as a church sit somewhere around, I don't know, 60-ish percent of our pre-COVID numbers uh, at this current point. Um, But that's not really, and it kind of feels weird, doesn't it? Kind of be gathered like this and scattered and just things continue to feel different than they normally would. Um, The last numbers that I saw said that 30% of American churches have lost over half of their attendance since their pre-COVID days. And that 50 to 70%, I'm sorry, another third of churches are at 50 to 70% of their pre-COVID numbers. And the, the result, like, oh, what do we do if we see so many people that have now suddenly fallen out of church? You know, some people are watching online and some people are worshiping from home and that's a very valid situation that we happen to be in this moment, but, but not everybody is. I've seen the digital numbers. It's not like everybody's flocking to the, the YouTube to watch what's going on either us or, or anywhere else. And the question is, what, are, what do we do to get people back to church? Well, we kind of we urge people, you need, you need to be in church, come back to church, come, come worship. And it, it feels a lot like a, like a parent asking their kids to eat broccoli. Like, like I, I have this sort of, uh, there's this sort of debate with me and, and some of my kids at the table. Now our littlest one, she'll eat just about anything and she loves Brussels sprouts. She'll steal Brussels sprouts off your plate. She loves broccoli. But otherwise, it's a little bit of, a, of this dance, this kind of like convincing the kids that you need to eat broccoli. It'll make you stronger, make you better. And, and, and I don't know, like, I think in their like five, six, seven, eight, nine-year-old brain, it, it, it's, they sort of kind of make this thought. Like, I know that I would, and I did as I was a kid. I'm like, you know what? You tell me this broccoli will make me healthier, but I seem to be doing all right without it. And that's a situation that a lot of people that we're trying to convince to come back to church are in. Come back to church, you need it. And they're like, I'm kind of all right without it. I seem to be doing just fine without it. It feels a little bit like a great aunt trying to beg you to give her a kiss. Nobody wants to do it, but you know you should. Like eating broccoli. If for no other reason than just to get it over with. I eat the broccoli first off my plate. I can get it over with. But that's not the New Testament concept of what the local church is. The local church isn't something that you attend. It's not a meeting that you go to. The local church is not a group of people that you happen to gather with once a week because they're the closest to your belief system and your style that you could find. The local church is something greater and bigger than that. The New Testament picture of what the local church is is a new family that you are reborn into. That's what the church is. It's a new family that you are reborn into. The, the New Testament picture of the church is a dynamic, God-inhabited, city-changing group of people. That's what the local church is, the missionary fellowship. Deeply shared lives on a deeply shared mission. It's a dynamic, God-inhabited, city-changing group of people. The, the New Testament picture of church is a, is a people who are in awe of the God who dwells in and among them. 
And because of that, they deeply shared their lives while living on a deeply shared mission together. Do you see in comparison to that how our picture of church falls flat? A meeting I go to because it happens to be closest to my beliefs or my style. And on the way home, we talk about whether that was a good sermon or a bad sermon or how I don't like that song or why are we singing it again? I says, that's even if we think about it afterwards, right? Let's look at what Paul's picture of the church is and how it affected his life and how it affected the early church. We start off in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 15. Uh, Paul is telling the, the, the believers in Rome that he's been trying to come to them for a long time, but he hasn't been able to make it there. He says, this is the reason I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you. But what we see off the, the bat on this is that Paul's plans, how he determined his comings and his goings were determined by something greater than his own desires or his own plans. Paul wanted to do something he wanted to come to the, to the church in Rome a lot earlier, but he didn't because God had called him to do something else. Paul's plans, his comings, and his goings were determined by something greater than his own desires or his own plans. And you, you have to ask, why was Paul so driven? As Paul is writing these words, he's, he's in Greece and he's finishing up his third missionary journey, which if you think about it, in the first century AD, took him across the Mediterranean three times. He wasn't flying first class, right, you know, racking up the, the miles. He was walking, he was on ships that smelled and were terrible, where you would get seasick. He was being shipwrecked on that process. He's being, going into cities and being rejected. It was a very difficult time, a very difficult life. Why wouldn't Paul, after he goes one time through the Mediterranean, plants a bunch of churches and is perhaps the most accomplished Christian minister to his day, why wouldn't he just, just take it a bit easier? Why wouldn't he take up a pastorate in a nice city where he can make a nice salary and live a comfortable life and just preach the gospel to a people who would pay him well and he could just like send out letters all the time instead of continually making himself more and more uncomfortable, taking more and more journeys to more and more places that would then turn around and reject him and kick him out. Why would he not take it easier? Well, I think a clue to why that is true is to look at Paul's testimony. Look at, look at how he became a Christian. And now this is a, another long passage and you know, this is breaking some rules of what you should do. If somebody's giving me advice of what you should do on a Sunday morning worship, they say, hey, you shouldn't read passages that are too long. And if you have one that is long, you shouldn't read a, another one that is long. But I think that we should take a look. And I, I, I'm looking at you guys. You guys look pretty astute to me. I think you guys can handle it. Think you can handle it? That's when you're supposed to nod your head. It's gonna happen anyway, so you may as well handle it. Let's, let's go. Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22, verse three. You could turn there if you're in your app, then all of a sudden you can magically jump there. Love to hear those page, pages turning. 
Acts 22, verses three. This is when Paul, and not, not too long after he writes this letter to Rome, he's heading to Jerusalem to bring them uh, this gift. And as he, as he gets in Jerusalem, he's gonna be wrongfully arrested. And as he's wrongfully arrested and he's almost mobbed and killed, he asks if he could say something and he has a chance to share his testimony with the people in Jerusalem. And this is what he says. I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated the feet of Gamaliel, who was a very famous pre, uh, uh, leader and teacher, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. He said, I was the Jew of the Jews. I persecuted this way, that's Christianity, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. That, you know what that means? Paul is saying, I was the least likely to become a Christian. And in the Jewish tradition, I was the most Jewish Jew that you could find. I was zealous for the old way. As I was on, verse six, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? Look at how quickly that changes when somebody meets Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he responds, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I, and I said, what shall I do, Lord? He immediately responds in humility and obedience to the Lord. And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And so could, since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came to, into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me standing by me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. What we see in this, in Paul's testimony is that Paul was absolutely and utterly undeserving of salvation. Not only was he a general sinner, but he decided to set himself against Christ and his church by condemning people who were following the way to the death and to be imprisoned. 
And yet we see that Paul was called, not by anything that he had coming to him, he was called undeservedly by the king, by Christ Jesus. And the result was that this Paul, who was of great learning and of highly respectable in the Jewish faith, all of a sudden he became humbled and he fell down. He was blinded, had to be held by his hand and carried by his hand, guided. He had to be brought to faith by Ananias, who was lower in rank in the Jewish faith than he was. And he was humbled and called Jesus Christ Lord because he was loved and graciously saved by him. And immediately, Paul was given a mission to fulfill for his Lord. And here's what I know about you if you're in this place today. If you're a believer in Christ, you have been called by the same Lord that called Paul. He may not have come to you in a bright light. You may not not have been struck blind, but you were saved by that same Lord who graciously humbled you and graciously called you and graciously saved you with his great love. Your salvation is no less miraculous than that of Paul, even if it didn't have a blinding light to those around you because when you are saved, you are brought from death into life. You are born, again, you are born anew by the Spirit of God, brought to go from one moment, being an enemy of Christ to the next moment, calling him Lord and bowing your knee before him by a change of your heart and soul deep within you. You have been graciously saved by the same Lord that graciously saved Paul, and you've been given no less a mission than Paul was given. Did you notice that? How immediately once he was saved, he was given a mission to fulfill. No one is saved except they are given immediately by Christ a mission to fulfill. And I think that most of us, our lives look so pedestrian in comparison to Paul and the early Christians, not because we have less of a calling, but because our encounters with Jesus are more pedestrian than theirs are. And not because of a blinding light. Because most of our encounters with Jesus are mental and we leave it there or are sentimental. I mentally assent that Jesus is Lord and that this gospel is true and I come in and I sing some songs or maybe it's sentimental. I come in here and I'm hurting and I'm struggling and I sing some songs that makes me feel better about myself and then I leave. But an encounter with Jesus changes our lives. It reorients what we focus on, where we are going and how we view where we've come from. For Paul, it wasn't one encounter that he had on the road to Damascus either. It was a continual life of experiencing and encountering Jesus Christ and having his life rearranged by him. It especially happened when the saints gathered together. Uh, Paul used this language in 1 Corinthians 5 when he was talking about a, a church discipline issue. He says, when you guys are assembled and gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is with you, then he says, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what should be happening when believers gather. Not that we just sing some songs and hear somebody talk, but there should be in our sense, in our presence, a sense that God is among us. There should be a sense of awe among us because the power of Jesus Christ and the presence of Jesus Christ is present in and among his people. 
Paul said, that is the driving force behind my life. He said in Philippians 3, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, that I may know him, he said in verse 10, that I may know him and the power that I may know, not mentally, that I may experience him and know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, becoming like him in his death. That's what was the driving force behind Paul. Paul had a mission because Paul had a savior that had rearranged, it was continually rearranging his life and that's why a life of ease and comfort was not on the menu for Paul. And it's not on the menu for any of us as believers because there is a great mission that is before us. The local church has a deeply shared mission. That's what he shares in this passage, all the way those verses 24 through 33 as he's talking about how he's planning to, to pass through the, the church in Rome on his way to Spain. He says, I've got more mission to do and I'm expecting that you guys are gonna send me on the way. Because I'm on my way to Jerusalem right now carrying a great contribution that the Gentile believers have made there for the poor who are in Jerusalem. There's this picture through this whole section of, the, of the, not only Paul having a great mission, but the church itself having a great mission. He tells them in verse 30, I appeal to you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. It's a, a, the, the picture there, that striving is a picture of wrestling together. Pray together that this, this mission would be fulfilled. Wrestle with me in prayer that this mission may be fulfilled, he's saying. When he tells them in verse 24, I, 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 I plan on coming and passing as you as I go to Spain to be, and to be helped on my journey there by you. That, that word there, to be helped or to be assisted, had become by this point a technical term that Christians use to help missionaries on their mission. Paul has this understanding, this assumption that the church there in Rome is ready and waiting to help missionaries on their journey because this church itself is on a missionary journey together as a fellowship of people who deeply share their lives on a deeply shared mission together. He's looking for and expecting generous help on his mission to go to Spain. He's, and then on the, on the process, as he's writing this, he's bringing this great contribution from the Gentile believers back to Jerusalem, to the, to the poor in Jerusalem. And, and the word, word that he used there, the contribution, that's the word koinonia. It, it, it's the name of our college ministry, by the way, Christians, wearing a, wearing a t-shirt up here. Well, the word koinonia means fellowship. It, has to, it means deeply sharing together. It's the picture, it's the word that's used for fellowship or community in the New Testament. It's the word that's used for church oftentimes or the, or the love of believers, of the church for each other. What it means to be a part of the church, it means that we, that we have or live in koinonia with each other. We are deeply sharing our lives together and it doesn't just stop on sharing our lives together like we get together and talk about what's going on in my life, but it means that we are practically taking care of the needs of people in our midst and the needs of our believers who are even overseas and outside of our normal circle. Koinonia, contribution, fellowship, a deep sharing together. 
That's what the church is about. Deeply shared lives on a deeply shared mission because of Jesus. Paul looks forward, he says, to being refreshed in his mission by being with the believers in Rome. This mission of Jesus that he gives is, is not just like, hey, we support a missionary somewhere, I occasionally share the gospel with somebody, that the mission of Jesus is all-encompassing. It involves, here we see, sharing the gospel, because Paul is preaching the gospel. He's talking about how he hopes to go to Spain to preach the gospel to those who have never heard it before, but it also has to do with very practically caring for the poor. We preach the gospel and we demonstrate the gospel by the way that we care for the poor among us and the poor who are outside of our circle. And by reaching across dividing lines that naturally separate normal people who are not believers. This wording, we're gonna to get to a second, those first 16 verses of Romans 16, it is different genders, different backgrounds, different nationalities. It is people who are rich and poor, slave and free. It goes across all lines. And he's, Paul is very concerned. The reason he's asking them to pray for this contribution, this money he's taken to the, to the poor who are in Jerusalem because it means a lot to him because it's coming from the Gentiles. He wants the, the Jews to receive gladly this contribution from the Gentiles that is going across racial and ethnic lines. I read something this week that there are 12 million unreached people in the United States of America. What that means is there are 12 million people in the United States of America who have not heard a credible explanation of the gospel. There are 275 million people in the United States of America who are not professing Christians. 275 million, that's over a quarter of a billion people in the United States of America who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And there are billions more around the globe. This is our mission. We are not people who are just happily gathering together in a room, listening to music that we happen to like, listen to a guy that we can tolerate because it happens to be the closest to my beliefs and the closest to my style that I can find. We are called to be a missionary fellowship who deeply share our lives while we live a deeply shared sacrificial mission for Jesus Christ like Paul in the early church. This is a, there's a, involved here a pattern of mutual wrestling. He says, wrestle with me together in prayer that this mission would be accomplished. What do we wrestle in prayer over? What burdens your soul whenever you pray? When somebody asks you for prayer requests, and hey, there are many things to pray for. Very valid things that you are going through that you need prayer for, your family. We always get requests for ants who are sick. And let's pray for those ants who are sick. But I think what should be burdening us beyond those things should be that there are 275 million people in the United States of America who do not know Jesus Christ. I think maybe even more that what should burden us is my neighbor 
who doesn't know Jesus Christ. Our family members. It should burden us that when our church does not reflect a deeply shared love for each other on a deeply shared mission. With a sense of awe in our midst because Jesus Christ is here. Here's the truth. You can't do this Christian life alone. You can't grow in holiness alone. And you can't fulfill the mission that God has called us to do alone. And we shouldn't want to do it alone. Our souls should be crying out to have a deeply shared love for each other while we live out a deeply shared mission together. The the picture here is of the local church being a a focused, mission-driven fellowship of deep mutual love and sharing with each other and beyond. It's sacrificial in its focus. By definition, it is sacrificial. It's sacrificial in our time, in our finances. It's sacrificial in our lifestyle and comfort level. And it's driven, Paul's telling us here, by wrestling prayer. Not just a polite prayer, but a wrestling, striving prayer. God, move in our midst. God, move in our city. God, move on my street. God, move in our day and age, move in our church. Our response, the, the picture there is, is like Jacob wrestling with the angel when he said, I won't let you go until you bless me. And we say, God, I won't let you go. I won't let this go until you pour out your spirit upon me and upon our church, upon our city and upon our nation afresh and anew. It's sacrificial and it's focused and it's driven by wrestling, striving prayer. And it's buoyed though by deep love and care. It's not just striving and wrestling, but it's doing so with people who you deeply love and care for. A camaraderie with each other that goes deeper and wider than any other kind of relationship that you can be in. The local church has a deeply shared mission and it has a deeply shared love. This whole section of verses one through 16, thank you, Carolyn, for doing that for me. So I don't have to read those. It stands out to me, usually you kind of blow over greetings like this. Like, oh, it's a bunch of names that I don't know how to pronounce, let's go on. But I think this is really interesting. Paul, in writing to a church where he's never been, names 26 people that he greets or he tells the church in Rome to greet. 24 of those he names by name. This is a picture of the deep shared life that the church was experiencing because he adds to most of those, not all of them, but to most of them, he adds some sort of personal reference about them. The beloved been like a mother to me. These believers, they crossed ethnic and religious lines. We can view it in their names. When you study their names, you can see some of these are Jewish names and some of these are Greek or Roman names. 
We, we see them by being able to interpret the names and what little bit we know about some of them or things that, that Paul says that it crossed Jewish and Gentile lines, across ethnic lines, across, across religious background lines, but also across economic lines. There are many names in here that we know that were given to slaves. And others who have some sort of social standing here. It crossed economic and social lines and it stands out, nine of the 26 names are female. It crossed gender lines. In fact, Paul commends Phoebe, who he calls a servant or that word that could be translated deaconess or deacon of the church. Isn't that amazing? There was a deep love and fellowship that crossed all kinds of different backgrounds and barriers as each person filled the role that God had called them to fill. I noticed two things about this passage is the the deep love that is shown here and the fact that everyone had a role. Because I commend to you, hear the wording, our sister Phoebe, that you may welcome her in the Lord. Greet Prissa and Quilla, my fellow workers who risked their necks for my life. Greet my beloved, Eponidas. Greet my kinsmen. Greet my beloved in the Lord, our fellow worker, our beloved. He says, those who are approved, who belong to the family, my kinsmen, these, this just close, personal, loving relationships that Paul had, that the, the believers had for each other. How do we think and talk about other people who are Christians and are in the part of the church? They had a deep love and fellowship with each other. Then you see that people had a role. Phoebe, who was a servant of the Lord and also a patron, she, she was a, apparently a person of means and who had supported the work of the gospel. Priscilla and Quilla, a, a, a couple. He calls them both my fellow workers. He goes through all these people who are in Rome or who had traveled, who had done things for the Lord, who was working for the Lord. He, Greek Rufus, the chosen Lord, and his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. And the wording here in verse 22, he says, I long to come there. Talks about the wording of the, the Greek churches. They says they were pleased to take up a collection for the, the poor who are in Jerusalem. The picture is that of loving intimacy, koinonia, fellowship with each other. Paul called them brothers and sisters and appealed to them back in verse 20 by the love of the Spirit. This, this happens when you're in fellowship or deep sharing of your lives with other Christians and it doesn't happen by accident. It happens through intentionally, deep, deeply sharing your lives with each other and rearranging your life in such a way that church is not something that you add on whenever you have extra time, but it's something is central to your life. 
We have something here called community groups. It's there in the the messy, mundane of community groups that you live out day-to-day, deeply sharing life with each other. And guess what? You don't always like those people. It's not always super fun. It doesn't always live up to your expectations and hopes. But it's there in that messiness of the daily grind of the Christian life that you really learn what it means to deeply share your life with other believers. And you find that whenever you struggle, when you hurt, all of a sudden they're there. When there's a crisis in your life, all of a sudden, not only are you weeping, that they're weeping with you. When you have practical needs, all of a sudden, baskets of food arrive at your house, anonymous. Nobody's posting on the video on Instagram so they get partial credit by doing a good thing. Just quietly being the church, sharing life with each other. You find somebody comes to a community group and shares about a, a need at their work or a need in their family and somebody you don't know, all of a sudden you're stirred to pray for them. You're stirred to, to, you collect, as a community group, you collect money and bless them somehow. People who've never seen your face or know your name, you don't even want them to know, bless them, help them. In lots of little, small ways like that, the kingdom of God is furthered and established and grown as we deeply share life with each other on a deeply shared mission. What's your view of the church? Is it casual and consumeristic? I think all of us are probably guilty of that to some extent as American Christians. Or have you been captured by Jesus? And so captured by him and captured by him continually seeing his glory and his greatness that you have dedicated your life to his mission and his church. Deeply shared lives on a deeply shared mission together. See church, we aren't a meeting. We aren't a club. We aren't just some singing and tearing back down again. We are a missionary fellowship. A people who have been captured by Jesus as Paul was and who shared deeply our lives together as we join Jesus on this mission. I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna prepare for communion. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would more than convict us of our casual view of your church and your mission, I pray that you would capture us more so with your glory that we would see your love for us on the cross. That we'd be able to echo with Paul that we count all things lost for the surpassing greatness of knowing you.
to experience your fellowship in the power that raised you from Christ from the dead. Well, it causes us to be a people who are cap- so captured by your son that we deeply share our lives together as we live and rearrange those lives around a deeply shared mission. God, we pray you would do that. We pray you would do that, God. We don't just throw up a prayer. God, we wrestle with you this morning. We say, God, do that in my heart. God, some of us, we need to wrestle this morning. God, do that in my heart this morning. Show me Christ afresh and anew so that I would rearrange my life around him and his mission. God, for anyone here who is not a believer in Christ, I pray that would happen for the first time for them this morning. They would be reborn into your church and would experience the joy and the toil that Paul experienced and that all believers experience that we rearrange our lives around you and your church. And that's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.